I'm Lemuel Gonzalez, Repentant Sinner, and along with Amory Armstrong, your heavenly host, I invite you to find a place in the pew for today's painless Sunday School lesson, Without Works. Welcome back to part two of our discussion about abortion. I learned a lot this week, and I hope that we can shine some light for all of you as well. Last episode, we spoke about the scientific and medical realities of abortion, as well as the general Christian viewpoint on the subject. This week, we return to the segment, Your Own Personal Jesus, and learn about the historical perspectives and suggest a way forward in the seemingly impossible debate. Your own personal Jesus. Recapping what we discussed in part one, we talked about the scientific and medical issues surrounding pregnancy and abortion, as well as the overall Christian viewpoint on the subject, and where the two couldn't meet. So what happens now? To quote Ezekiel, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Let's see the issue for what it is, a modern problem, one that is not described in the Bible or in the teachings of Jesus directly, but one that Christianity must have an answer for one that needs an extrapolation of Christian ethics. First, we must define the issue. Here's the division. To a pro-life supporter, the issue is a child in danger. To a pro-choice supporter, bodily autonomy is the right all people should be granted. Since the central teaching of Christianity is that self-sacrifice is the highest act we are capable of, the ethics of denying a human life from what can be interpreted as inconvenience is morally wrong. Also, since there is no clear conception, even in the Bible, about the beginning of life, it also seems that this is a question violating the commandment on the sanctity of human life. How then do we reconcile the two points of view and find a way to move forward? How do we live together? This is how. We have to redefine the way we address the subject. So far, one opinion of the Christian view of this topic has dominated the conversation. The view that Christian ethics and morality are incompatible with a person's ability to make a choice. Let's discuss some background. You've done some extensive research on the subject. So why don't you give us a background on the history of Christianity and its dealing with the subject of abortion? Christianity has had a history of abortion that dates back to the early Christian theologians. They also wrestle with the question of where life started. Excuse me, when life started. I'd also offer that they may have had a question of where life started, if it was within the womb or extant of they it. They might have. The church did not start adapting an idea of what abortion meant until the 3rd century. When it came to ideas about science and the natural world, the church fathers were often deferred to ancient Greek philosophers like Pythagoras and Aristotle. These ideas included a clear distinction between a fetus that was formed and one that had no recognizable features. Another idea was that the fetus does not have a soul until it begins to stir in the mother's womb. The quickening. That reminds me of Highlander. I know, Every but that's also what it was called. Even more complicated was the association of abortion with sexual immorality. Unwanted pregnancy was tied in Christian moral terms to adultery and promiscuity. Uh, as in any married couple would be thrilled to have a baby yeah. regardless of circumstance. Because and again... Remember when these early Christian ethics were formed, when there was a very, or comparatively low, child survival rate. Right. So you had 10 children so that three survived right. to adulthood. Right. And so also when we talk about even the earlier period, when it was still Judaism, mm -hmm. right, the gains of Judaism, they were a nomadic people right. surviving in really harsh conditions. Right. So the, the, you needed as many bodies as exactly. you could get. 
Right. To protect your resources. Which today is not the case. Is no longer, as a matter of fact, the opposite problem. Yes. Is we're not we're saying we're behind a two-child program no, or anything like that, but there are not dire needs for people to repopulate. There's limited resources. There's also limit, yeah, economically for a family and globally for people generally. And also, you've got a pretty good chance if you have a pregnancy that goes full term that that child will live all the way up into adulthood. Right. You don't have to make spares. Well, in, developing, in developed countries, yes. Yes. You, you, it's not a concern that you have to have necessarily if you have the resources and the relative comparative wealth to right. raise your child. Christianity has not always unanimously been on the other side of the abortion debate. The Catholic Church has maintained a consistent view about abortion. The Protestant Church has had many different views. Would this also tie along with the Catholic Church's anti-death penalty yes, status? It would. They are for all life, right, beginning and end. So they can. Whereas that, Protestants typically are pro-death penalty. Well, they can be. Evangelicals certainly are overwhelmingly pro-death penalty. Which is wild. Which doesn't make any sense. That some of the most active speakers against the death penalty are. Are Catholics. Nuns. Sister, Sister Helen, Helen Prejean. And if you don't know Sister Helen Prejean, the film Dead Man Walking has Susan Sarandon starring as her. Right. She's also speaks and writes on the subject significantly. Right. Very eloquently. So I'll link some stuff in the show notes to uh, Sister Prejean. So 50 years ago, a mainline Protestant and Reformed Jewish clergy called for the liberalization of abortion laws. And they found founded an organization in New York called the Clergy Consultation Service. And that was an international uh, network of clergy. There was about 2,000 members that fought for reproductive health and reproductive rights. They saw it as a civil rights issue, suffering from terrible health problems due to back alley abortions. Right. Which is a term I don't like using because no, it's No, we don't cliche. love it. And it's also, it evokes a kind of image of a guy in a coat hanger, yes. frankly. Yes. But which is also though mm -hmm. what often was happening. That's not an unfair or women in desperation would do things to put themselves in physical yes. peril. I, or they would try right. and hurt themselves right. in order to in order to not carry to full term, they would do things that were seriously uh dangerous. Yes. They would drink things, they would physically injure themselves. Yes. Throw themselves downstairs. And that was the old one you saw in a lot of old movies. Women fling themselves downstairs to get rid of a pregnancy. Or like opening doors and things into themselves. There seemed to be the idea that they caused enough physical trauma. To their abdomen. They would spontaneously uh, Which abort. Can happen. It can happen. So the clergy consultation service, the CCS, members demanded their state legislators repeal abortion laws and publicly testified for that course. These are... Protestant leaders and Mainly Jewish Protestant leaders. Protestant and Reformed Jewish okay. clergy. Reverend Carl Bilby spoke with Michigan lawmakers who were conducting public hearings on that state's abortion laws. He was a leader of Michigan's CCS, and he took the position that, quote, as a matter of human right, each woman be given control of her own body and procreative function, and that she has the moral responsibility and obligation for the just and sober stewardship thereof. As in a woman or a person with a uterus, is a fully grown adult and has the right to make decisions for their body themselves. Right. <laughs> gotcha. 
Reverend Alan Hinnand of the Philadelphia CCS, uh, he said at a 1972 legislative hearing that it was time for women to rise up and take control of a situation and a choice that belongs to them as females. Okay. So the progressive partisans have there was a time when there were mainline Protestants who were supporting choices that women could make on their own part for reproductive health. And please know that these are 1972 terms, so they right. are using women and females. Uh, we would like to generally open that up to people right. having mm-hmm. those parts, uh, transgender men and non-binary folks included. The Southern Baptist Convention passed resolutions in 1971, 74, and 76 after Roe v. Wade, affirming the idea that women should have access to abortion for a variety of reasons, and the government should play a limited role in that matter. So what that means is the Southern Baptist Convention, which is now the most conservative group, right, actually passed these resolutions. So there was a change that happened at some point when it was still a social issue. The Southern Baptists were behind it, saying that rather than having women risk their lives or harm themselves, that they should be trusted to make their own decisions over their own bodies. And and this uh, sort of falls in line with the division of church and state that I think uh, at this time especially the church was very much for. Right. We'll make our decisions and the government should be small enough to stay out of it. Right. Which has flip-flopped in the last 40 years right. significantly. So, small government doesn't mean small government in terms of restricting individual freedoms, only corporate right. stuff. There's little it, interference in what corporate, uh, corporate entities... They want no regulations on corporate e- entities, right. which are quote-unquote, people, people yeah. but tons of regulation on what you and I are allowed There's to do. There's a lot do. of identification of personhood in conservatism. A fetus is a person, and a corporation is a person, but a woman isn't a person or doesn't have the full rights of rights either of the two of things I just mentioned. Right, which um, it, it is illogical. Has, and un- right. you, you cannot draw... These days, in these political climates, uh, this political conservative climate, you right. cannot draw parallels of thought from one level to another, which has not always been the case. Right. As we said in the 70s, that was very much what they were saying. We right. want small government, stay out of our churches, stay out of our homes, stay out of our medical decisions. And now it's like they've switched so that if the people in power agree with them, they don't mind if you come into quote-unquote our homes mm-hmm. as long as it makes your home like my home because I'm doing it right. Right. So there's evidence that abortion was an artificial issue for the evangelical right, adopted to unite conservative voters and protect traditionalist culture, paternalistic and largely white. Abortion became the tentpole political issue for the moral majority, a collection of religious leaders that struck back at President Jimmy Carter for stripping segregated schools of public funding. The moral majority delivered two-thirds of the evangelical vote to Ronald Reagan in the next election, spending $10 million on ads vilifying Jimmy Carter and depicting him as a false Southerner. With Jerry Falwell as a public voice, the moral majority pushed, quote, American values. So this needs to be... Stated explicitly, and mm-hmm. this sort of ties into the issue of a single-issue voter right. and and the political uses of single-issue voters. So what you just said was mm-hmm. 
they chose abortion as an issue to fighting for segregation. For segregation. So here we have uh, a group of largely white, mm-hmm. and in this case, I would guess wholly white, mm-hmm. evangelical leaders angry that the schools that they were running, these are Christian schools that mm-hmm. they wanted to keep segregated, and I'm going to explicitly say they did not want black people in their schools, and so when they lost that funding, they did, they went on the attack using abortion. Well, they needed uh, to change policy. and the, Because it doesn't look great to yell, we don't want black people in our schools, right. give well, us our particularly money. Particularly as a Christian, when you're supposed to be of the opinion that Jesus died for everyone's sins. Mm-hmm. And that everyone, that one of the great equalizers in Christianity is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's one of the tent poles of Christianity. Everyone is equal. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, whether you're a man or a woman. Right. And so that's one of the things that makes it a great faith, is the fact that there's a, an even playing field and nobody gets an advantage. So so they, they couldn't say, we're rising up against you because you want us to, to desegregate. Right, and they, they made it into an issue that they wouldn't explicitly say was about segregation. It was more about the churches under attack from a liberal government, which should sound very familiar to you now. And then used abortion as a galvanizing argument right, for that. Right, because um, the Catholic Church is the largest Christian body in the world. And they have a very strict rule of, of uh, view of abortion, right? So these small group, relatively small group of evangelical mm-hmm. white people who were angry at the government decided that in order to rise up against Jimmy Carter, they needed the Catholics. Right. And so they were like, well, anti-abortion Which is was, the way to go. <laughs> yes. They realized that at the height of evangelical Christianity, it was only 20% of the Protestant church. And, so, and that's worldwide or in the, in the United, United States. States? Okay. So in order to turn that tide, they were going to have to appeal to an issue that would pull in Catholic voters. And so abortion was the issue. Okay. They could pull in a group of hundreds of thousands of American Catholics. Right. And then... And that are not centrally located, too. Right. They are all across the country. All so over the place. So you can turn an election right. with Catholic voters. So they, they picked this issue. Right. And grabbed the one-issue voter. And I want to talk about one-issue voters. Sure. Single-issue voters. There are people who are single-issue voters on a number of things. Some people only care about taxes. Mm-hmm. If you if you say you won't raise my taxes, I will vote for you. Uh, there's a lot of single-issue voters uh, specifically around abortion. If you say that you are anti-abortion, I won't use the term pro-life because I don't think that's what it is. <laughs> if you are anti-abortion and you can put anti-abortion judges in courts, I will vote for you, regardless of anything else yes. that's going on. And the current administration used this tactic. It's a very low-impact way for a politician who does not care about an, this issue to get a lot of voters. Right. And the problem with that, I mean, there are many problems with that, but a large problem with that, and you might think, well, you don't agree with them, so it doesn't matter if bad things happen to them because of decisions that they make. That is not how I look at the world. And 
so you as an evangelical voter vote for the current administration based solely on I'll put anti-abortion people on the Supreme Court. That's your that's your in. Meanwhile, the administration who does not care about abortion as an issue, certainly not as the only issue, and some previous anti-abortion administrations did care more about the subject Mm -hmm. than this current one does. Uh, But a lot of politicians who just say, it's one line. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to sign anything to it. You don't have to even think about it more than just saying, I am anti-abortion and I will put people on the courts that have that same mindset. Mm -hmm. You get into office and you pass seriously detrimental legislation against the people who put you in office based on that one thing. It is a low impact or almost no impact thing that a politician can say to get a bunch of people to reliably vote for them who they do not care about as constituents right. past the point of the ballot box. And they may put a judge or two on in place, and it may cause more problems on the abortion front for all people who are seeking to get medical attention. And it harms, typically, significantly harms economically those same voters that have just voted on this one issue while ignoring every other policy that was going to be problematic and harmful to them. In the case of, and I'll contribute a little bit of my personal history with the issue, I went to, I spent my junior and senior year at Shiloh Christian Academy, which is filled with some very good people. They were very anti-abortion. This is back when it was pro-life. Right. Well, it's still, they I, can I, still yeah. say that, but... I can still say that. I mean, I can say that. Of that period of time, that's what we were told. And so I never participated in the protests that they held, but they would occasionally, there were people who were going to, and I don't know that it was the policy of the, the school or the church that it was attached to, but there were people who were going to anti-abortion rallies and protesting or picketing in front of uh, Planned Parenthood clinics. And it got so anxious at one point, uh, my mom, when I mentioned to you that she had a van uh, that said Born Again on the side, and uh, that van was used for the musical group, my brother and sisters, that she took around to prisons and churches singing. We were in front of a YWCA, and there was a Planned Parenthood clinic on the fifth floor, and they saw my mom's van with the words Born Again printed on the side, double parked in front. Mm. And they called the police because they, they were afraid they were about they to were get afraid exploded. They were get bombed. Yeah. So and things like that did happen. I I don't know anybody who would have gone to that extreme. They just really believed. We were shown pictures of mutilated fetuses and told that this is what we were fighting for. I remember being at a there was a Catholic bookstore in downtown Oakland, and sadly it was right across the street from the restaurant where I was eating lunch. I look up from the windows, mm-hmm. and they have plastered the inside of their windows with posters of mutilated fetuses. Many um, of which I would say, I would like to say, uh, are snopesable. I mean, they're not mm-hmm. actual, that's not what those images oh, are. There was a cartoon image of a fetus crying while a needle's puncturing it. Oh, oh they it just was, went straight cartoons. Right. Okay, Some so. of them, no, no. Some of them were, were pictures of something horrifying that looked like it had human remains to it. But 
So there was more a, often than not, right. I'm, I'm saying those are doctor yeah. photos or photos of medical procedures that have nothing to do with. And I think there were protests asking them to please take it down. I know the local restaurants were all like, well, there's five restaurants on these two blocks and everyone passes by your pictures of aborted fetuses. You're giving us a hard time. We were what I, in discovering and reading more information about how this started, I felt very personally betrayed because there were so many good people who this is what they were being told. This is wrong. And we were given the moral equivalent of watching trains going to Auschwitz. Wow. That's what we were told. And so to find out that it was really just politically expedient because some people didn't want to be taxed on their church parking lot and some people wanted to keep black kids out of their school, that it stings to know that this was fabricated. We don't need to be having this fight. It also bothers me to know that there were so many young women, older women too, but young women primarily, people who were confused about their choices. I mean, it must be a difficult enough choice Mm -hmm. as it is. Of course. But to have that picture of you know, a child being punctured by a needle or a mutilated corpse with a hand mm-hmm. sticking out of it. Having those kinds of images thrown at you, I what did it do to them? It's a little bit ironic. That was the other thing that I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, There's a straight line from mm-hmm. these people who did not want to desegregate right. and were actively racist to where the harm comes from with the removal of abortion access. Okay. So there was a 2018 study of socioeconomic outcomes of women who have, who receive and women who are denied wanted abortions in the United States based on interviews with 813 women over five years. So this is a fairly significant study. It shows that women who were not able to get abortions and later, later gave birth had higher odds of poverty six months later than women who received abortions. They were less likely to have full-time work and more likely to get some form of public assistance. Both effects remained significant for four years. So if you compare a woman, two women Uh who want to get an abortion for whatever reason, probably socioeconomic reasons, and one is able to get the the sought-after medical care and one is not, the one that is not is for four years so socioeconomically stagnated, probably on some form of public assistance. And the study concluded that laws that restrict access to abortion may result in worsened economic outcomes for women, uh, an outcome the women expected since the most common reasons that women gave for seeking the abortion in the first place are financial, and particularly not having enough money to raise a child or support another child. People are pretty good at understanding what the money that they have will pay for. And child rearing in the United States is extraordinarily expensive. And we offer very little help. Mm. And there have been wide studies showing that women of color are much more likely to be denied these services because women who are white typically either have access to clinics or can get to a clinic, even if there aren't now, is local. Is it safe to say that these are white women within a certain economic... Any white woman wow. is generally... It's easier for white... White women live in places where they can get to mm-hmm. or have resources where they can get to 
abortion services. Do I mean all? No, I absolutely okay. do not. I was raised by a white woman who had four abortions before she had me. Mm. My mother had four abortions through high school. She is from a Catholic family, so mm. it didn't go great for her. But yeah. and, and at a time where her father had to drive her out of state because they lived in Massachusetts where it was not legal. But her Catholic father drove her repeatedly to New York State to get abortions. Mm. And then she had me because she could not afford an abortion. You know, she had moved away from her family. She was living in California at the time. In California, she did, there were clinics, but she, it was outside of her price mm. range. So there are, of course, white women who would seek abortions and cannot get them. But it is much harder for women of color because mm. they are often in places where it's virtually impossible to find a clinic. And especially now with a lot of the restrictions that clinics put on you where you have to go three or four appointments right, exactly. instead of being able to that take means care of a, a thing. hotel room, that means sticking around. Days that, off right. of work, which a lot of times we're working in an hourly economy where right. if you miss days of work, well, we I guess we can't, we don't need you. We'll have to get somebody else. Medically... This is the other half of some of these current abortion laws that are coming up. They are discussing the criminalization of abortion. Not just you can't have one, but if one occurs, the woman or the doctor, and the different states have different regulations here that they're testing out, could be criminally liable for that. However, medically, a healthcare provider cannot tell the difference between someone having a spontaneous abortion, i.e. a miscarriage, naturally, that your body produces through no use or no doing of one's own, mm. or by one induced by medication or abortion pills. By criminalizing abortion, anti-abortion advocates are forcing medical providers to interrogate a patient's pregnancy outcomes. So if you are perfectly happy with your pregnancy. We're looking forward to having this child and have a miscarriage, which 10 to 15% of known pregnancies end in spontaneous abortion or miscarriage. It's a very high number that is not discussed, but that's why a lot of people don't talk about their pregnancy until they reach the second trimester, because spontaneous abortion in the first trimester is extraordinarily common. So if you have one of these miscarriages and are deeply upset about it, you could be asked by your doctor about your behaviors leading up to this. Mm -hmm. You could be asked by the police about your behaviors. Well, in other words, you're interrogated for something mm -hmm. that adds, this will just add to your grief. Any words you utter could be self-incriminating. Indigenous traditional herbs might be suspicious. Simple misunderstandings, language barriers, or racist assumptions could land patients in jail, and they already have. Mm. This is already happening. There was recently, and I believe that the charges ended up dropped, there was recently a woman, a black woman, who had been shot in the abdomen and was charged criminally. She was pregnant at the time and mm. lost the pregnancy. She was charged criminally with starting the fight that got her shot. First of all, I guarantee would never happen to a white woman in the United States. And there was enough uproar about it that they, I believe the DA, decided right. to look in the mirror 
and understand that this is a terrible thing that you are doing and stopped doing it. Mm. But this woman was put in jail after losing her pregnancy violently. And they sound like, you know, I'm panicking and Mm. showing worst case scenarios. But these are things that are happening today in 2019 in a country where it is still legal for women to get abortions federally. But all of these laws are starting to criminalize women for behaviors that are not criminal in nature. And finally, I wanted to speak on... So we know that the pro-life movement was entirely political. It reinforced negative images about women and their sexual lives. It gave men control over women and their choices without providing an alternative. The Moral Majority was an organization that made dog whistle callback to segregation and outmoded values, a reaction to the civil rights progression of the 60s and 70s. The Moral Majority had a public voice in Jerry Falwell, who was on Donahue. He was on nightly news shows defending the position of a very conservative America. When Jim Baker had his fall from public grace, such as it was, Mm -hmm. for some reason, Jerry Falwell was uh, the one to liquidate all of his assets, including Jim Baker's Christian theme park. For some reason, he was like a moral default for evangelicals. And he uh, was... A little bit of a golden calf, it feels like. (laughs) Well, he was. I remember that any sympathy that I had for him, even back when I was surrounded by very conservative Christians, happened when he spent his Easter address vilifying Hillary Clinton. He uh, was pushing a kind of American values that harkened back to uh, unquestioned male authority, head of the home, uh, jobs and responsibility being given to men rather than women. He didn't seem to trust women in positions of authority. He uh, also very early in his career, ran one of these segregated schools or segregated institutions was something that wasn't really addressed very much. But uh, he was the public face. The Moral Majority was a watchdog organization. Mm -hmm. They made sure that uh, the laws were kept in their favor. They made sure that taxation of church properties was not done. They're largely, if not entirely, Mm -hmm. a lobbying group. Yes. And they were. They were created as a lobbying group, as we've just heard. They wanted Ronald Reagan in power to ensure that uh, their kind of morality was enforced. Or laws were not made to impinge on their rights to continue to function as financial organizations that were never taxed. Uh, But they were using fake outrage. Fake outrage and persecution panic, I think, would be the other term to use. They're out to get you. So they would, and that's how they get people to vote in a block. Mm-hmm. Those single-issue voters, those evangelical white voters right. that the Republican Party has been reliant on f- since the 70s. Well, since right. 1980. There, there was um, a culture war, and it did happen, but it didn't need to. It was spoken into existence uh, by the moral majority. Who were just a bunch of people who didn't want taxes and wanted to be well, well, they segregated. Didn't want, they didn't want the government interfering on their version of morality. We want to be able to keep our schools segregated. We don't want to have our church institutions taxed. We don't want to... Would they consider the segregation part of their version of morality, or did it just 
I that I <laughs> I'm the wrong person to okay. ask because I, I don't mean, understand how that works. We should look into that right? because that's. But they did certainly push American values to the extent that there was a pushback. And unfortunately, Christianity was associated with this kind of behavior. Right. Um, well, because that's who's the loudest. That's the face. The face was Jerry Falwell and to another, a lesser extent, people like Jimmy Swaggart, who were, who is arguably a really motivating public speaker. He had a great well, deal I would of think that all of these that. men are probably fairly motivating, right. motivating public speakers, or they wouldn't be able to garner the support that they garner. Right. Because some of the things that they say are absolutely ludicrous, and if you've opened a Bible, mm. are in stark opposition to right. what it says in there. Now knowing that this was a, a political manipulation, it was politically expedient to have a moral majority to choose abortion as an issue we have to look at what we do going forward. I think the best step is to reject conservative manipulation and accept that this is an issue about a woman's right to make her own choices. There is a way to prevent abortions. Again, we don't ever think that abortions are the best choice or option. Yeah, there. I don't think there's a human being on this planet who is like, yay, abortion. No. That's. It's a choice that you may have to make. And it's often, uh, it's, a, it's a painful choice, and it's often a desperate choice. Uh, but so it shouldn't be a life or death choice. It should choice. not also be a criminalized choice. The men are not asked to make these kind of decisions. Men are not penalized for making the decisions they do make. So, no, and it has been noted in many a public sphere and there are twitter threads and all sorts of things that i could point to that men or those with sperm mm-hmm. are at fault for 100% of unwanted pregnancies and yet they are not it's very hard to argue with that conclusion it's it's impossible right. to argue with that conclusion there are contraceptive steps that could be taken on the mm-hmm. part of the man that are not. There are abstinence steps that are taken on the part of a man that, that are not. No pregnancy that has been unwanted has not involved the waylay. Exactly. <laughs> and that leads me to what I feel is the resolution for the issue. There is a way to prevent abortions. Sex education and contraceptives being made available to young people and others Given tools to prevent pregnancy, the number of abortions will decrease. Given mm-hmm. education, the number of accidental pregnancies will decrease. The issue that the moral majority fostered was that your children are being taught sex by people who don't share your values, so we have to get rid of sex education. Mm. All right? They, your children are, if contraception is being made available to your children, they will be promiscuous. Therefore, we have to get rid of it, and it will lead to their moral downfall. It's acting as if, and once again, it's very paternalistic. I, as a husband, have the right to make choices for my wife because she's morally weak. As St. Paul would say, and we have to address him someday, the woman is the weaker vessel, and so she has to be taken care of. And yet she's the one in charge of carrying the child? I will point out that Jesus never said this. Right, but but I would would argue that biologically... That mm-hmm. statement makes no sense. If what, you, so. if what you're saying is the most important thing for humans to do is to have more humans, and it is 
the woman, the female of the species that carries said other humans to term, they are, by definition, the stronger vessel. Because otherwise, wouldn't you put that inside of the man, the strong man, who could definitely carry this child with no problem? What? What? Hey, your your lock of logic is showing. It's very confusing to me. Well, he was also a lifelong bachelor, as far as we understand. So the, 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 I think when we, we can prevent abortion by taking steps that don't involve legislation. If you want to prevent abortion, educate people. Well, that make does involve legislation because right. um, but we have legislated we sex... a person up afterwards. No, no, no. Right. But what I'm saying is we have legislated sex education out of schools in some places. And so that is where legislation can come back in, is mandates mm-hmm. round sex education for boys and girls, about boys and girls. The sp- that's the other thing. that When I was mm. a child, our sex edu- well, I had sex education in school, but when we were you know, in third or fourth grade, right. they split us. The girls went to one place mm-hmm. and the boys went to the other and never do... I will never know what they told the boys. I will never know. They told me that I was going to get my period one day. <laughs> that's basically what they told me. And then after that, you know, don't with the sex. And then in seventh grade, there was health and we did have co-education. There is no reason for children Mm -hmm. to not learn about the various physical forms that the human body takes at at an age-appropriate time. There's no reason that girls shouldn't understand how a penis works and boys shouldn't understand how a vagina works. Well, it would be really useful of you to mystify the process of a woman's period. Yeah. Because men Because only women it. get that information. Right. and the, But it's not like men never interact with any part of that. Right. We don't send our women to huts for a month or for a week, a month every any anymore. Some places do. But <laughs> <laughs> so in an age-appropriate mm-hmm. and clinical way... Mm-hmm. There's no reason that all children shouldn't understand how human bodies work. There was a, when I was a kid, and uh, we're sitting right now in a house across the street from where I went to elementary school. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were taken to the school cafeteria. Mm -hmm. Everyone was sat down together, and they watched a film that made absolutely no sense to anybody because it was put in such clinical medical language with animated diagrams and and a very stentorian narrator. You can do animated things. Right. There, but there it was are just, ways to do uh, it. We still, I mean, but it was very much like looking at, how can I describe it? Um, as you'll see in old documentaries, when they point to maps about migration routes. Basically, that's what it looked like. Right, right. No, and I understand what the you're drawings, saying. The illustrations themselves bore no resemblance to any organs that anybody in that room anybody had. had. Okay, yeah. But they were no, internal views, so it kind of just looked like you were looking at, like, you know, intestines or right. something. Right, but you, well, you don't want to, I mean, for right. children, you don't want to, like, have but accurate, like, We were not given any prepping, we were not given anything No, it's always a surprise. It's yeah. always a Thursday morning, and you don't know what's happening, and then all of a sudden, this right. is what we're doing. Why are we, ju- why are we, we shouldn't be springing these things on our children, but they should be educated. There is many a woman who does not know how many holes 
her body has in it. Because that is actually a thing that is not covered, and we, we can't necessarily see what's going on down mm-hmm. there. These are basic things that I would argue everyone has a right to know and understand and well, ask questions about. If you do not know how reproduction works... Then it's real easy to, right. oops, accidentally reproduce. Right, well... But also, I think that I don't trust parents to do this. First of all... As a parent, I do... There are some things where I don't necessarily want a teacher explaining this to my child because they'll be divorced of whatever ideas I have about a child's upbringing. That's happened before. I I'm actually it. fine with teachers. Uh, Here, this, this quarter or this mm-hmm. semester, we will be discussing sex education. This is what we're going right, to talk about. I would like to... Here... Right. If you want, we're, we're going to start on X okay. day. So you talk about with your kid before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. The parents should absolutely be part of the discussion, but it also needs to be right. a general and across-the-board thing that all children get because if you pull your kid out, they are then behind. Well, what I would like is, as having a parent or having uh, had an adolescent kid, that you're allowed to be a part of the process, sit down in the classroom, and we can all discuss it. We sure. can all talk about it. Try to make it someplace, because it would be really, for some kids, much less threatening if your mom and dad is there. Maybe not in all cases. And in some cases, it would right. be deeply threatening if right. your mom and dad were there. But I so... think, you know, if you try to make the parent, and having worked in public school, a part of a process, sometimes it works better. Yes. And you start having... Um, conversations with them you have it presented by the school nurse which unfortunately when well, i was working very few schools have nurses yeah, when anymore. i was working at the um, at the school across the street as an adult we didn't have a school nurse anymore but there has to i think you prevent abortions by taking the proper steps in the first place absolutely um i would like to speak uh a, do a, a quote from rachel held evans who we She's, she was a Christian columnist, blogger, and author. We discussed her previously in the proselytism versus propaganda episode uh, where you canonized her. And this is a quote from an article that she wrote supporting the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. I'd like to suggest that voting for a pro-choice candidate in this election or any election need not overburden your conscience. Here's why. In the eight years since we've had a pro-choice president, that is the presidency of uh, Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. the abortion rate in the U.S. has dropped to its lowest since 1973. I would like to also remind that 1973 was right when the church was on board with Mm -hmm. liberalizing those laws. I believe the best way to keep this trend going is not to simply make it harder for women to terminate unwanted pregnancies, but to create a culture with fewer unwanted pregnancies to begin with. So even though I think abortion is morally wrong in most cases and support more legal restrictions around it, I often vote for pro-choice candidates when I think their policies will do the most to address the health and economic concerns that drive women to get abortions in the first place. For me, it's not about being pro-birth, it's about being pro-life, which is why I won't use the term pro-life in many of these conversations because Mm -hmm. that is not what many of these people are as they fight against a social safety net, 
and, you know, pre-K for everyone and care for mothers and WIC and mm-hmm. SNAP and food stamps and financial support. Well, if you are fighting against all of those things, you are not pro-life. You are pro-birth and pro-poverty. And I am not behind it. I'm not behind it. But that is her. That was her point of view, and I think that you mirror that point mm-hmm. of view. The other, another spoke in the wheel of um, lowering uh, abortion rates is the taking on the culture, uh, which is pretty prevalent within mm-hmm. the evangelical. Some of the evangelical uh, houses of toxic masculinity and boys will be boys mentality that too much of the United States has where rape culture is just the culture that we are in. You have to give women the benefit of the same doubt that you'd give men, Mm -hmm. that their intentions are good Mm -hmm. and that they're not intentionally going out and getting pregnant just to have abortions. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But the idea that somehow... It is medically ridiculous. It is economically ridiculous. It is ridiculous in terms of time Mm -hmm. and intent. It is baffling that anybody would presume that. And if you presume that, who are these women that you think are out there? Right. These are no women. These would be demons. (laughs) And if that's the issue... It's a separate issue that we need to take care of. We found some bright spots in the news and bring them to you today in this week's edition of Stand Up and Testify. I said I wasn't going to testify, but I could keep it to myself. Oh, I could keep it to myself. Oh, I could keep it to myself. I said I wasn't going to testify, but I could keep it to myself. bit of good news this week on Stand Up and Testify is a story I saw floating around Facebook, which is apropos because it's taking place on Facebook. Some good news for Facebook for a change. And that is the story of Zaria and Haley, two young ladies, uh, ages 13 and 8, who live in Delaware and are every evening going onto Facebook Live and reading a bedtime story to anyone who can reach them. They are aware of their privilege in a way that they understand that not everybody has the mother or father to read to them every night or a large uh, or access to a large group of books or anything like that. So they decided that since reading is good for you, they would get online and read to you. And I think this is a lovely idea as a person who While both my parents were readers, I have no recollections of being read to as a child. Mm. Uh, I learned to read fairly young, and I was reading to myself from a very early age. Like, when I went into kindergarten, they said, oh, we're not going to do phonics, so don't teach phonics. And my mom was like, she can read already, so I don't, whatever you want to do is fine, but it's too late. And to this day, when I try and listen to people tell narrative stories out loud without me being able to follow along, I actually have trouble doing that. Like, if you just wanted to read me something, 
I would lose the thread in about two minutes if I mm. wasn't really, really focused on it. And I think that's actually detrimental. Uh, so I think that what these young ladies are doing is wonderful. They go every Sunday to the library to pick out a whole stack of new books to read. And they are focusing on books that um, these are two young uh, black girls and they are focusing on books with kids that look like them mm -hmm. to sort of make it, you know, more inclusive, inclusive. Right. Uh, because you know what, as a white person, I love stories about black people. They're, they're tales I don't necessarily know, or they're exactly the same as the ones that they tell me, but they don't default to white. And that's fine because little girls are little girls and little boys are little boys and little non-binary people are little non-binary people. And it doesn't, we default to white way too much. So I like that these little girls are doing this. Uh, I, they're starting to work on books of their own, which I think oh, was only a hop, a skip, idea. and a jump from what they wanted to do, um, or from from where they are. And they, because they're they're in a military family, so they're looking at doing a series of books about military families. I think that's got a good mm -hmm. audience too. And those kids. I think it's very cool that you can just log on from anywhere and have this piece of sort of childhood nostalgia. Like, I almost want to log on and say, hey, what are you reading? I, read to me. Maybe I'll learn to follow along. So, way to go, Zaria and Haley from Dover, Delaware, and their their mom, of course, for supporting them in doing that. That's great. Yeah. That's great. That was actually one of the better memories of my childhood. Uh, my mom spent a summer reading Charlotte's Web to us. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, and we got it at the same time every day. It was just after dinner. And she'd read a chapter or two. And, um, of course, it's a very sad and tragic book in a it lot is. of ways. Yeah. Um, but it really it showed me a lot because not too long after that I saw the film. Mm -hmm. And it made me understand the difference between telling a film story and telling a uh, a story through, uh, well, literature. Writing, yeah, right. written versus visual. The the amount of time that you have in telling a story with words as opposed to pictures. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the only drawback is I wound up having very fond memories of a, what a happy, warm manure pile Wilbur well, had. Yeah, that is unfortunate. So for he's dis and White describes it. E. B. White describes it so wonderfully. That you're like, I want one. I want one. And <laughs> the illustrations on the subject were very uh, ambiguous. Well, they were black and white, right? right. They were pen drawings, if right. I recall correctly. They were really ambiguous. So I would heap my blankets in a corner of my bed, and that was my manure pile. And it wasn't until much later that I understood this is not necessarily a desirable thing right. to have on your bed. And when I found out what a manure pile was and what it smelled like, it, you're I, like, I, oh, I felt, I'm out. <laughs> yes. I felt betrayed in a way, but. Well, yes. you're not a pig, so yes. well, that's part of it. Uh, one of the things that I do, I, I don't long for children 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of the time. Right. I do envy my friends reading Harry Potter with their kids for the right. first time, uh, especially because one of my friends read it with his son, and it was his first time reading it too. Right. He just didn't. He didn't know what to expect. No. We're of an age where I worked in bookstores when Harry Potter was coming out. Yeah. So I read it, mm. but I was an adult. I wasn't right. a child. And he's he's exactly my age, basically. 
So he's seen some of the movies, but he has not read the books. So he is having this experience with his son right. um, at the same time. And I that's, I think, a very, very cool experience. I, I had the good fortune of having a son who was really interested in, and we were able to find a bunch of old editions of books that I cherished when I was a kid, these sort of uh, early readers' versions of Classic, classics yeah. <clears throat> that had an illustration on one page and the text on the other. And so we went through War of the Worlds and Call of the Wild and Last of the Mohicans and... You tried to do Robinson Crusoe and Robinson failed really Crusoe early. Robinson Crusoe um, A Journey to the Center of the Earth. He, I found out that my son really loved Jules Verne. And we, we read a lot of Jules Verne together and he was fascinated by it. And he has a very kind of scientifically... Uh, oriented mind. So the idea that Vern talks about explicit dates and numbers and times and, you know, we were so many, many miles beneath the earth and the temperature was this and uh, we were at this grade of descent, that yeah, kind of appealed to him. It's very much like a, cap that captain's log is very much like a scientific notebook. Right, so. and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea had the same thing. We're under this location and we followed the location around in a map and it really became an activity for us. Uh, so yeah, I have very fond memories of reading to my my kid, and I am really glad that other kids get to have the experience of being read to. Yeah. It's, it's a great bonding uh, it's, experience. It's an experience that I'm sad that I missed out on, but I am glad that... Mm. It's uh, just for other kids. Yeah. And especially in neighborhoods or environments where there's parents are working two parents jobs. Parents are working or and can't... Or there's kids, a language yeah. issue or a literacy yeah. issue in the language that you know kids would want to be read to in or something like that. So. Right. Uh, no, this is this is very good, and and I applaud them for, you know, it, it takes no money for what they're yeah. doing, right? They just get on. They, well, they have Wi-Fi and they have a, a mm -hmm. connection, an internet connection, but they're getting library books, and they're just making it happen. That's good. So that's it's awesome. Really so what are you testifying um, about this week? Mine is kind of. Uh, I, I wasn't aware that this was going on. It's been going on for a little while now. Um, R.I.P. Medical debt. And, Good name. Uh, it's their mission is to empower donors to forgive the billions in oppressive medical debt at pennies on the dollar. So what RIP does, and it's funded by two men, and their names are Craig Antico and Jerry Ashton. And what they've done is that they um, they're a nonprofit based in New York, and they want to eliminate crippling medical debt. So they uh, buy up medical portfolios for pennies on the dollar with the purpose of forgiving the debt for people earning less than twice the federal poverty level. Right, which is about 25000 25000 a year. And have debts that equal 5% of their annual income. So those so they're they targeting specifically. Criteria. Interesting. Um, I should bring up that in 2018, a Kaiser Foundation New York Times poll showed that 26% of people who reported problems paying medical bills 59% reported a major life impact, such as taking a second job, uh, cutting household spending, or using up savings. So yeah. it's really affecting people. So these two men got together. They bought medical portfolios the same way that a debt collection agency will. Absolutely. For pennies on the dollar, because the institutions want to be paid something, right? Yes. Um, so they will sell off medical portfolios, mm -hmm. but instead of a collection agency, they buy it. Yes. And then they're able to pay off medical debt. And the reason why it comes into this, RAP Medical, mm -hmm. is that there's recently been, um, since uh, last year, churches 
have been realizing that a great way to benefit their community, particularly affluent mm-hmm. or non-denominational churches in rural areas where they have uh, a congregation of... Because non-denominational church is not affiliated with anybody. Right. So they don't have a... It's not like the Catholic church that They're has, not paying tithes up right, somewhere. Right. So the thing is, they've discovered that they can take uh, seven churches that are under a non-denominational banner in Kansas, for instance, will take together a mass collection and give it to RIP, who then relieves the debt for people. Right. They've discovered that they can do a great deal of good for local people that right. way. Right. Especially if, since it is pennies mm-hmm. on the dollar, so if I as a person owe $25,000, but my debt is purchased by... And weirdly, you can purchase your own medical debt, wow. but you have to do it sort of a roundabout way, but you can pay, you know, $2,500 right. for $25,000 worth of debt, and then it's gone. Well, the way that it's done is interesting. For instance, a group of churches uh, in uh, Kansas got together, and they decided that there were five Sundays in a particular month. Uh-huh. So instead of the four Sundays they were donating to the church to keeping their organizations going, this fifth Phantom Sunday that they had, they decided right. to take collections from all of those churches and put them into buying these medical portfolios. Right. And so they've been doing this. This particular group of churches, the Pathway Churches of Wichita, Kansas, bought the equivalent of $2 million of medical debt and forgave it. Um, Higher Vision Church of Santa Clarita, California, successfully relieved $1.6 million of medical debt. There's a Maryland church that has 200 members in a congregation. They don't even have a permanent building. All right, they're renting. And they paid off over a million dollars for 900 families that with a, just a $15,000 donation. Right. Because it's being bought for pennies. Because medical debt right. is not equal to actual cost or actual payment to the hospital facilities. Right. Um, John Oliver did this on his television yeah. show. I believe he bought a million dollars worth of debt for... And I believe he was associated with RIP. He, he may have been. Yeah. He may have been bringing this to their attention, and he had he gets this portfolio that they bought for. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of money. It was a million dollars worth of debt, I believe, but he didn't pay more than twenty thousand right. dollars for it. And then he was just like, "Now what do we do? Are we making phone calls to try and get these people to pay us?" No. Right. It's just forgiven. He just tore up the check, and and all of those people are just. Yeah. They can breathe again. So since 2018, 18 churches in the Protestant spectrum, and that includes the one Episcopal church in one case, uh, have partnered with RIP and they've relieved over $34 million in medical debt. So in a year and a half. Yes. That's incredible. $34 million. And as I said, some of these congregations are so small, but they're able to get right. something in that Because that's up not to say it's huge... $34 million that they paid. No, they no. paid... A tiny fraction of that. Right. Yeah. So one church decided that they didn't even want their names to be included, the name of the church, as being the people who bought the debt. The pastor said, when a person has their debt forgiven, we want them to experience that as a kind of no-strings-attached gift. We don't want there to be any sense that because we did this now, they should visit our church or something. So these some of these churches are doing this anonymously. That's an incredible thing for an organization to right. do. Because right. it only benefits them to put their name. Like, it doesn't yeah. hurt anything to be like, on behalf of the Revolution Church, right. Yeah. congratulations. Yes. They, they're not saying, and now give us all your money right. that they you would have been paid. They don't want there to be, it's a gift, it's a gift without obligation. Right. 
And so that's what kind of what makes it so neat that there's so many people out there. And again, this is what the church is supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that both for RIP, that they found a way to do it. Yeah. I'm glad that these churches have been beginning to discover a way that they can really help the community. Right. That one group of churches in Wichita actually relieved the debt of most of the people living in Wichita. And they're spreading now to other places in Kansas. And their goal is to make the entire state medical medical debt debt free. So good work on RIP, good work on the part of these churches, and this is something we, we can put a link to RIP. Yes. You know, on our It'll page go in the show notes. So that other people can can follow this. Yeah. This is a great example of actually going out and proving your faith through your works. Right. And and it's you were collecting this money anyway. Right. And this is a very worthwhile mm-hmm. way to spend that I money. I think one of the churches did also have the new idea of putting all the Easter money into it. Because oh, yeah. you get the largest largest congregation gatherings. Easter and Christmas, I Eastern would assume. Christmas, Easter and Christmas Christians come back, and everyone's there. So you get big donations on those days. And so they put their Easter donation in because they're like, this is what we're about. This right. is what we're supposed to be about. And it's where that's a hu- that's going to be a bigger right. impact than almost anywhere else right. because it's pennies on the dollar. Right, exactly. And And these debts are crippling these families. Right. That's awesome. It is. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you liked it, please subscribe and leave us a review and share it with a friend. We have an internet home, withoutworkspodcast.com. Our show notes, links to stories that we talk about, and transcripts for our episodes can be found there. We're also reachable at withoutworkspod at gmail.com, on Twitter at withoutworkspod, and on Facebook at withoutworkspodcast. All that information is on the website as well, so go there and have a look around. I've been Amity, and he's been Lemuel, and we urge you to get out there and do something good. Everybody's got a little light under the sun, under the sun, under the sun.